All right, all right. If you notice me hobbling around, uh, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, maybe you're too gracious to tell me, I don't know. Um, I was at middle school camp this last week, and um, everything went fine. For Sunday night, we got there, we had, uh, we had dinner, we had a good time of worship, the kids had a good game while I collected my thoughts. And then uh, we had, you know, bedtime, Monday morning, good 18-hour day, making those kids tired. Tuesday morning, I woke up, I was in, in my groove, uh, and the kids wanted to go play this game called Gaga Ball. Um, maybe you've heard of it. It's okay if you haven't. Um, it's basically wall ball mixed with dodgeball mixed with just danger. And so um, I, I was out there, and as a camp counselor, they say, hey, if the kids invite you into a thing, go do that thing. And so as a good counselor, I, they invited me into the gaga ball pit, having never played before. <clears throat> and uh, unfortunately, uh, so one of the things is you're supposed to dodge the ball because uh, you don't want it to hit anything below the waist. And so I did that, but in doing so, I slipped on the gravel and my foot went in a direction it's not supposed to go, um, as you can imagine. And so I'm pretty sure I sprained something, if not more, but um, if my mom's watching, I'm okay, I'm okay, it's gonna be fine. Um, uh, I can walk mostly okay, but I'm just not at the same speed I used to be. So here we go. <laughs> that being said, uh, it was a good week at camp. Um, I want to open just by, you know, uh, by sharing another story from my time at camp. So as a camp counselor, they had this thing that they wanted us to do by uh, leading the kids in developing a drama skit to somehow encapsulate the, the week's verse um, from, I think they got it from Luke, but it was where uh, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment uh, by one of the scribes? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we were supposed to come up with this skit. And so, and uh, uh, my friend Jeff, he's the youth pastor at uh, Crossroad, uh, we were in the same cabin together, thank God, um, but he was off doing some director thing that he was supposed to be doing, and I had the task of trying to lead these kids through choosing a drama skit to do this, and it was a hot mess of a brainstorm session. Um, really, it was a hot mess all around the whole week because <laughs> these kids, I, you know, I made the calculated mistake of uh, suggesting a skit that would appeal to their interests. So we had uh, pretty much like a full sports cabin. I'm not much of a sports guy. Y'all know me. I'm not that, that guy. But I said, hey, what if we did this skit because there's, you know, some basketball hoops around and like, what if we did this skit where you guys are these two opposing basketball teams and it's this whole dynamic of like how you treat each other. And they were like, yes, let's do it. The only problem is 
ego got in the way. Uh, they, uh, you know, middle school boys, uh, you know, kind of stretching their, their pride a bit. Um, and so they all had different ideas of how it was supposed to work. Um, you know, we actually got into the practice of it, and it was just, it was, uh, the only way to describe it was a hot mess. Kids were crying. Kids were, like, kind of picking their nose off in the corner. It was just a, it was a strange experience. But in the end, we got to Thursday night, and we're doing these skits. It's, there's no going back at this point. And it ended up coming together. It happened. It, whether I wanted it to or not, it was going to happen. And uh, it, it ended up being okay. And it ended up being better than I actually was expecting because our final run through, oh, it was not good. <laughs> the, the, oh, it was not good. I say all that because uh, we are in a series right now uh, called Rebuild. And we're looking at the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. It's one of the history books. Um, it's one of the history books that records what happens after the exile. Um, there was a period in Israel's history, God's people's history, that uh, they had turned away from God enough times to where God said, okay, I'm going to put you on a really, really long time out. Uh, in a different land, and you don't get to be in the promised land anymore. Um, and he called that an exile. And so um, <clears throat> there came a point, though, where the timeout was over, and so the people got to come back home. But after doing so, uh, the means by getting them to the timeout uh, really wrecked uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so, it, you know, in the first wave of people returning from the exile, uh, you had a guy named Ezra who, um, he was a priest, and he was burdened with the task of rebuilding the temple because not only were the walls demolished, but also uh, the temple itself, the house of worship, was destroyed. It was, not, it was not anywhere near the glory that it had once been, not even close. And there's lots of reasons for that. We won't get into that today. But that started in around the year 520 BC. And um, prior to the year zero, everything's counting down <laughs> as you go. And so 144 years go by. Uh, and then this guy named Nehemiah, he hears about the condition of Jerusalem. And he is so burdened by the fact that the walls are demolished, the people are completely demoralized. Uh, they, are, they are not in a good way um, at all. Um, they were kind of a hot mess at times. And so Nehemiah, our first week, we talked about through um, Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, he had a really big heart for his people and for the city of Jerusalem, and for good reason. Um, but as soon as he was overwhelmed with these emotions about this news, the very first thing he did, it wasn't to go gather, you know, everybody he knew and to, you know, let's make a plan right now and let's make sure this happens, X, Y, Z, boom, execute the plan, check that off the list. That wasn't what he did. He went straight to prayer. And he prayed for four months, um, fasted and prayed for four months. 
And then eventually, by chapter 2, um, he's doing his job, doing his thing uh, as a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Um, and what he does is he's overcome with sadness um, at, at all the news of what had been going on. And the king said, you're not normally sad. Why are you sad? Why is your face all distorted? Like, why are you ugly? <laughs> That's not a good thing to hear from a king. Um, and, and so Nehemiah, he just pours out his heart to the king. He says, why would I be happy when uh, the city where my fathers lay, you know, is completely destroyed and is in dis discombobulation? I don't know. It, there, that's not the word that's in Scripture, but that's the idea behind it, right? Now, that's my great summary of then, all this time as he's been praying, Nehemiah has also been formulating a plan. Um, and so then the king says, how long are you going to be gone? I'm going to miss you a lot because you're a great cupbearer. How long are you going to be gone? How, when are you going to return? He gives them a date and has a plan for it. And then he goes to Jerusalem but he doesn't, you know, through all of this, Nehemiah shows incredible patience. He is just, he, he's taking his time. He's not anxious at, at you know, doing this work. Um, and so he arrives. He doesn't tell anybody what he's there for, what he's doing. Um, and he starts to survey what needs to be done to rebuild and restore the walls of Jerusalem and ultimately, the testimony and the glory of that great city that um, was the dwelling place of God, where, you know, that was where the temple was. That's where God's manifest presence rested in Old Testament times. Now, that all brings us to today. So, the first week we had him praying, Nehemiah prayed. The second week, we got to see a glimpse of his plan of how he was going to do it. And today, we get to see all of his plan start to come together. We're not going to get a finished product yet, but we get to start to see his plan come together, hot mess and all. And so the title for today is just really simply, Come Together. Um, the passage today is Nehemiah chapter 3, the whole thing. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring together today is that God rebuilds through us. God rebuilds through us. That means you and me and each and every one of us. He chooses to use human instruments to do his will here on earth. <clears throat> and so... One of the interesting things when I was at camp that I discovered was that um, I was starting to say all these really cliche coaching kind of things <laughs> because, I mean, I have no idea about the game of basketball. Um, I mean, I have an idea, but I, I'm not a basketball player by any means. Um, and so at one point, these words came out of my, my mouth, and I thought, wow, that's a great thing, but that's really cheesy. And it's that teamwork makes the dream work. Have you heard that before? I'm sure you have. Some inspirational sports movie at one point or another 
probably said something like that, uh, or maybe some really great uh, TV preacher or something. I don't know. But teamwork makes the dream work. And I think that that's a really great uh, summary of uh, what we get to see in Nehemiah chapter 3, because it's the people doing the work together. Uh, so without further ado, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaneah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Miramoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, <clears throat> repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana Gate was repaired by Joiada, son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, son of Bisodiah. <laughs> Whew, what a name. Uh, they laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah and Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Miranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates, Uziel, son of Harhaiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumaf, made repairs opposite his house, and uh, Hatush, son of Hash Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Malkajah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. <clears throat> Shalem, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan, the residents of Zenoa. They were built and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. <coughs> The dung gate was repaired by Malkajah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalan, son of <clears throat> Kol Hosi, 
ruler of the district of Mizpah, he rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Beth-zur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Benui, son of Hinadad, ruler of the half-district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zebai, <clears throat> zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Miramoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Benui, son of Henadad repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palau, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedaiah, son of Perosh, and the temple servants living from the hill of Ophel, made repairs to a point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower next to them. The men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Emer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaleph repaired another section next to them. Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters next to him. Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired, uh, repairs, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner and between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. There we go. Amen. Ha, huh, right? Here we go. All right. So there are a couple of initial observations I want to make briefly. The first, uh, if we were to go back to verse 1, where it says that Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests, they rebuilt a part of the wall, uh, and specifically the sheep gate. This is where the sheep would have gone into the city the sheep would have been used for the sacrifices at the temple. And then there's this word in the NIV, it says dedicated 
but I don't really like that word. It's not because I don't like the Bible. It's because I don't think that that really fully encapsulates the original Hebrew word. Uh, sometimes this happens with the NIV. It's okay. Uh, translators, they do their best. Um, there's other translations. Maybe you have one uh, from the King James tra tradition, like the ESV or the ASV or the NKJV or something like that. It may say the word consecrate. I think that that, that word consecrate might actually really summarize well this word of what they were doing. Because dedicating, I can dedicate a song to Angie on the radio, right? Or, or I can uh, dedicate, uh, you know, even I can say, I'm dedicating this work to my children. Or, uh, or, or fill in the blank, I can dedicate something, you know, you can uh, christen a boat for its, uh, for its maiden voyage, right? Um, you can dedicate things and objects. But what's really fascinating to me is that dedication, really, that's just speaking about honor. That's saying we're doing this in honor of. And I know that that's our, our cultural understanding. What seems to be going on here, though, is that the high priest, so uh, at the end of chapter 2, Nehemiah says, we got work to do, guys. We do. Are you with me? And they say, yes, we're with you. And so they get to work. The first person that we see working, though, is Eliashib, the high priest. And the first thing he does at the very beginning of what he does and order matters in Scripture, like the very first thing, he, he builds this thing and then he consecrates it. And that, that root Hebrew word is kadosh. It, it's a different form in how, how it's said, but it's the Hebrew word kadosh, which is the same word for holy. It's the same word for being set apart. It's like what um, when the angels in Isaiah 6 are declaring about God and his holiness, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's that same root word, and which means that uh, you know, God is other than, he is holy, he is set apart from creation. In a similar way, this wall, this work, was to be set apart from the other works that were being done. This was not just your everyday building of a wall. It's not like we're just putting up a fence uh, just to keep other people out. This was a special thing. And I think it's unique that Nehemiah make sure to point this out. At every single turn, Nehemiah's main concern is that everything, no matter what, starts with God. That's why he went to prayer. That's why even in his prayer, he said, God, would you please be with me when I go to the king? Because he could, you know, ax my head and I'd be, I'd be done for. Will you please be with me? And his, his plans were you know, fully funded and all of that. And even when he's talking to the people, he's describing to them, he's casting this vision and he's telling them the story about how God was with him through this all. This is all about God. Yet what's also fascinating is that in all the names I read, God's name or God's title and actual reference to God doesn't happen in the portion that we call chapter 3. It's a fascinating thing to know. Another thing is with the names, all those names, 
funky names, weird names, names I would never name my child, ever. <laughs> and I'm sure they have wonderful meanings. Um, I didn't do any research into all the different meanings of names uh, because that would just, there's 38 people mentioned, and that's just an incredible amount of names. What I think is fascinating, though, and why I wanted to do the exercise, e even if I failed at some points, is because those were real people with real names. And you are a real person with a real name. Now, on an attendance sheet and everything, you might be included in a number that we have to send into our denomination to let them know how we're doing. But every number has a name, and every name is a person, and every person has a story. These were real people who had lived there for some time, and they were tasked with rebuilding this wall, and they built where they were. What they had right in front of them, they did the work, uh, they were inspired, and What's interesting to note for me is that this is something that was done together. No one person just gets the credit. All the names were mentioned, unless it was a people group. And even then, that's a people group who was mentioned. Like the uh, Tekoaites. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, it's fascinating because these people, uh, they had a place. And they wanted that place to be dedicated to God, and they wanted that work to represent Him. Now, uh, some, uh, some key takeaways from our passage. So you may have noticed, so in verse 20, it, among all the names, uh, there was this guy named Barak, son of Zabai. I probably said it differently a couple minutes ago. Uh, but it says that he zealously repaired another section. Zealously repaired. Um, and that, I guess, was an adjoining thing to Eliashib's house. Why would Barak zealously repair the wall? Why would he zealously put himself into this work of rebuilding. I believe it's because God rebuilds through us, but even more than that, it's that Barak, he caught the vision. He knew their purpose. He had heard from Nehemiah why they were building the wall. Why rebuild? Ultimately, it was to restore the testimony and the witness of Jerusalem to be that dwelling place of God's glory. And for many years, they had not been that. And so he knew his purpose. It's interesting that I know if you've been around church very long, uh, most people, most pastors, they, they lead their church through defining a mission statement and a vision statement and some values. And those are all really good uh, uh, things that we get as principles from the business world, and, and I am a major fan of them, <laughs> uh, as you'll come to find out. I'm a major fan it, because the thing that they do for people is they help you know why you're doing 
what you're doing. On one level, why we are here in this house this morning is to gather together to experience God, not just on our own, but together. For us as a group, why we exist, that's still something I'm, I'm trying to figure out. So if you would join me in prayer for that, uh, me and Pastor Parish and Council, we're, we're trying to put our heads together to define some statements that will help us know our purpose more going forward. I know that in the past, one of the statements we had come up with as a family was that it is, we exist, we're here to bring people closer to Jesus. And that's not going to change. That's just, that's a core thing that uh, for as a follower of Jesus, that's what we're supposed to do. I also think that, uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't want to say give too much away because we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But Barak, he knew his purpose. And it'd be interesting to, to ask ourselves, do we know our purpose both as a group and then also your place in that purpose? Because God has provided for the church with all of you and with me. We all have a part. We all have a place here to participate in what God's doing in Florence. And I'm excited for the future. God rebuilds through us. And that is fueled by knowing our purpose. Now, the second thing to note or to take away from this is that there is cooperation, not isolation. This was a team effort. Remember, teamwork makes the dream work. And that is also true of these people in Jerusalem. It wasn't just Nehemiah, lone ranger, out there trying to do it all on his own. Even with all his passion and all his burden, he delegated to people. And he didn't just delegate to people saying, you seem like you'd be really good at that, go do this thing. Something unique that I had never picked up on before, and I, I read, you know, even in a leadership book about it, is that Nehemiah, something fascinating that he did was he delegated to the people where they lived, where they were. So as an example, for the church, the great commission of the church is to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded and to be baptized uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's fascinating is that that's such a big vision, and that can seem insurmountable, like, wow, how can we ever do that? But the fascinating thing is that God has placed you right where you are, and or he's moving you where you need to be. I was in Portland, and praise God, he led me here a year ago to be here. He has placed me here, and he's placed you here for this season. And I'm so grateful for that because you have a place, you have a purpose, and you are a part of this church. And so if we are going to rebuild, and I believe we need to, and if this is the work that God has placed in front of us, that means he's going to do it through you and through people like me. 
It's not just, you know, the spokesperson up on the pulpit saying, here's what we need to do, guys. I'm going to lead the charge Lone Ranger style. No, it's a team effort. We're doing this together. It's something we do when we come together. Now, third thing to note is that we need to encourage each other. Uh, the work can get pretty discouraging, as we'll find out in the couple, next couple of weeks. There's going to be opposition that comes our way, whether, uh, you know, whether it's twisting an ankle, right? Uh, or maybe it's getting sick. Maybe it's, you know, somebody getting in your face and, and really not liking what you have to say about God or how much he loves them or how much you love them <laughs> or, or fill in the blank. We need <coughs> this family. We need a community to belong to so that we can encourage each other as we do the work because there will be opposition. And finally, there's going to take some kind of step of faith, stepping out in faith. Now, even if it's just a tiny step, a forward motion, if you've been not moving, that tiny step can feel like a major leap. It can feel like, whoa, I just got, I can't believe I'm here, it, you know, and, and now I got to take another one. Yes, God is calling us to step out in faith because he has a big dream for the church. And, you know, as a whole, and he has a big dream for your life. He hopes and he dreams for you. Will you, like these 38 plus people mentioned here, step out in faith? Even just one step is a step in the right direction. Finally, just, just to reiterate, you know, the whole togetherness and everybody having a part, I thought it was really fascinating. There's this point, I, I'm... I don't have it marked down. Oh, here we go. In verse 12, it talked about this guy. He was a ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, and he repaired the section with the help of his daughters. Now, what makes that fascinating is most of the people listed in these 38 are guys. And that's an important distinction, by the way, that we need men to step up. But women are not discluded either. Women, you have a place. You have a purpose. God has a plan for your life and your, your participation in this work as well. It takes everybody. It's not just one group or another. It's not just guys and not gals. It's everybody working together. Have I made my point clear? Okay. God, <laughs> yes. God rebuilds through us, and that means he rebuilds through you and through me.